Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The Larry the Cat of podcasts, chasing away the mangy foxes in Downing Street. <laughs> I'm Roz Taylor. And if you follow our socials, you'll have seen our big news. Oh God, What Now? is going twice weekly with an extra edition every Tuesday morning, starting next week. When we carried out a survey of listeners a couple of months ago, it was pretty clear that you were up for more Oh God, What Now? So that's what we're doing. The weekly panel show from our companion podcast, The Bunker, will become the new Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? with a mixture of regulars from both shows and the same mix of political analysis and high-quality despair. So be here on Tuesday or Monday if you're a Patreon backer. We're really excited to hear what you think about it. Now let's meet today's panel. Commentator Alex Andreu joins me in the studio. Hi, Alex. Hello, Ruth. The protests in Iran are still growing despite a violent crackdown by the Revolutionary Guard. This is now the biggest uprising since the Islamists took power in 1979. Do you think the protesters can keep it up? 108 people dead so far, according to Oslo-based Iran rights group. Um, it, it is one of those counterintuitive facts, I think, that authoritarian regimes survive by oppressing people and stifling dissent, but every authoritarian regime ends because they've stifled dissent too long, if that makes sense. Um, there are almost no historical counterexamples that I can think of. So every state depends on a favorable ratio of support, passivity, and opposition, even dictatorships. Now, dictatorships are much better at forcing passivity, at minimizing opposition. Their network of enforcers is larger and more brutal. So their tipping point may be higher than Erika Chenoweth's 3.5% thesis, but there is a tipping point, right? Um, there is a point where there's not enough enforcers and too many rebels. And there's a sec second thing, I think, that like everything else, revolution is a thing at which people get better with experience. And what we're getting in Iran right now is an entire generation of people acquiring those skills. So will the tipping point be reached this time? I don't know. Are we closer to the tipping point? Without doubt. So we should be tentatively optimistic. Yes. Hannah Fern is a contributor to The Independent. Hi, Hannah. Hi there. Liz Truss wants to overhaul the childcare system as well as everything else. She's thinking about giving the money sent directly to nurseries to parents instead, and they could then give it to whoever's looking after their kids, including their own parents. You're not a fan of this plan, are you? I'm not. I should say first that usually I am quite a fan of these kind of direct redistributive systems that give money directly to people. And I do think it's good to trust people to spend their own, spend that money in ways that, that work for them. But on this, I think it's a real mistake. And the reason is that we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. And the children who need those kind of early years um, settings, that kind of care, they need that one-to-one -one support, that specially trained support. And if you're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, what's going to happen is those parents who are making those kind of eat or heat decisions, if they're given cash in their bank account for childcare, but it's a question between do I provide some kind of excellent nursery care or feed my child, they're going to choose the, the mm. latter, of course. And so what you'll see is uh, nurseries closing because the, the money isn't coming directly to them. Wealthier parents will be able to top up their nanny share or something with this, yeah. this investment. And meanwhile, the kids who really need that early year support won't get any. And it will lead to, I think, some quite difficult conversations with 
grandparents, I think. I mean, you know, would you would you take two thousand pounds a year to look after the kids? I mean, that, that's one no, conversation. I need more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And the other thing also is that it completely forgets that grandparents are often very young. If you're twenty, you have a child, and your child has a child at twenty. You're 40. You're still in the workforce. Yeah. This is not something, you know, there aren't millions of grandparents ready to drop the, the work they need to do to pay their rent to look after their own child's children. I think um, it misses the point on a lot of the, the really critical, the first thousand days of a child's life. There's so much research that shows how crucial they are to their development emotionally, academically, and, and in all ways. And this is for me, a complete stepping back of responsibility on, for, for children and their, their start in life. I agree with you on that. Our guest this week is a research associate at the UK in a changing Europe think tank. Alan Wager, welcome to the show. Hi, Rose. Thanks for having me. UK in a changing Europe has just put out a new report on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And there have been signs of movement on both sides recently with this one. Are we likely to see a deal soon? I don't think we'd likely to see a deal anytime soon really not really the side of christmas that's a bit of a prediction i wouldn't be that optimistic the two sides are still in the broad principles of what they're setting out as their red lines if you like so while we've seen some changes in terms of the mute music coming from various sort of ministers and cabinet ministers from the conservative party conference and so on the basic fundamental problems that we've had throughout the past six years or so, can't be necessarily be resolved. And actually, this legislation that's going through this week and is currently in the Lords is likely to continue to exacerbate the problem we have in the in these negotiations between the UK and the European Union. So I think the next big deadline, of course, is the 28th of October, when, in theory, that we should get uh, uh, elections to the Northern Ireland Assembly if the DUP refuse to enter into the executive. So but it sounds like that date could be pushed back and that brings all sorts of political problems and all sorts of knock-on effects with that too. It is nice to have less outright EU bashing than we were used to under Johnson, though. At least I I find it refreshing. Uh, see, possibly the only positive thing I could say about this administration. <laughs> Relatively low bar, but uh, a low bar has <laughs> yeah. been passed nevertheless, I suppose, yes. This week on the podcast, Parliament is back and Truss is still floundering. Kwasi Kwarteng says he'll give more details of his mini-budget at the end of the month, but the markets and economists can't see how he finds the £60 billion he needs for his tax cuts. Plus, Labour's polling better than ever, but that doesn't rule out some sort of coalition after the next election. We'll speak to Alan about the history of electoral team-ups. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, with John Cleese getting a show on GB News, we talk about the celebs who lurch to the right as they get older. The markets were supposed to have calmed down by now, but this week the Bank of England stepped in again to buy bonds to try to stop pension funds selling them off. Meanwhile, GDP fell by 0.3% in August and the International Monetary Fund is warning of a sharp reduction in economic growth in the UK next year. Jacob Rees-Mogg says the chaos is all down to higher interest rates in the US, though. Alan, we've just seen Liz Truss, or the woman with the shelf life of a lettuce, as The Economist has put it, back at PMQs. How is she handling the weekly clash with Keir Starmer? Well, we had the sort of, you know, the comment from people in, in the lobby and so on saying, oh, well, that performance was pretty OK, really. But the fundamental question was, is she going to U-turn? It was very hard to pass from PMQs. But There seemed to be this reliance on the idea that there won't be cuts to to spending because with this rhetorical trick claiming that the energy price cap potentially counts towards the overall government spending 
to, I think there's, we're, we're still stuck on this sort of idea of uh, rhetorical ways out. And the government quite hasn't quite necessarily accepted, you know, what's happening. This is a sort of acute crisis that's happening right now. And we're seeing that, we you know, sending, you know, politicians, ministers going out, denying any responsibility for the problem. And, that, and that's actually sort of making things actively worse. So I think, yeah, in substantive terms, it's a bit of a disastrous prime minister's questions in a way for, for Liz Truss, because it's very clear that they still haven't actually got a plan for what to do next. She doesn't seem to have made up her mind whether to raise benefits in line with inflation or in line with earnings. Doing the latter would be a real terms cut, obviously. Which way do you think she'll jump on that? Well, it, it sounds like she won't be jumped, but she'll be pushed towards having to U-turn on that. And that will be probably one of further U-turns to come. And that's sort of a relatively painless U-turn compared to the more you know, striking sort of fundamental U-turns, which are forgetting about the, the measures in the budget entirely or, uh, you know, sacking her chancellor or fundamentally the Conservative Party taking a U-turn and, and getting rid of Liz Truss after, you know, you know, about a month in office. So those, are, I think, yes, I think she will have to sort of ultimately accept that she can't make those sort of cuts because I think the numbers just aren't there in Parliament and that's been made clear. But I think, you know, next week, uh, you know, may go on to this, looks like it's going to be incredibly painful unless they you know, get ahead, well, not get ahead of it, but try and catch up now as opposed to uh, this sort of slow, painful peeling away of these various aspects of the budget, of the of the fiscal event uh, of a couple of weeks ago. So Alex, Liz Truss said today there would be absolutely no public spending cuts today. Uh, the Treasurer has promised a medium term fiscal plan at mm. Halloween, which is going to set out how all this will be paid for or not. But how is Kwarteng going to square this circle? Can he really just keep on borrowing? No, I mean, he can't, um, is a simple answer. Everything that is going on is the preamble to a series of embarrassing U-turns. I mean, that, that's what's good. And, and some of them have already happened and are already happening. Um, you can't promise to stick by those tax cuts and make no spending cuts. And all of it will be paid for, apparently, by this magical growth that will be stimulated entirely by supply-side measures that she can't even get past her own party mm. because she's dealing with a backbench, half of whom, she, you know, hate fracking, half of whom don't want planning restrictions relaxed, half of whom don't want enterprise zones in their constituency. I mean, they have really boxed themselves in. More interesting to me is the fact that after PMQs, her spokesperson said, difficult choices lie ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so so I think she will have to U-turn on both. My guess is she will delay the tax cuts, um, announce she will do them in 2023, 2024, 2060, doesn't matter, jam tomorrow, and then cut services dressed up as efficiency drives and also, I hear some rumours that they might use this GDP deflator um, measure <laughs> that is 3.7% instead of CPI inflation, which is closer to 10% at the moment. So there will be a, a lot of creative accounting and there will be a lot of U-turn. This, this lady is for turning and turning and turning, I'm afraid. Well, haven't we already got a GDP deflator? I thought that was, that was what we had already seen in August, a lot of GDP deflation. 
Uh, I mean, there were suggestions that the budgets of public services could stay the same, but because inflation is so high, it would be a real terms cut to them. I mean, could the government really get away with that, given the state they're in at the moment? I mean, they're the government. Of course, they, they could get away with doing it. Whether they could get away with it politically is a different question. But that goes to the heart of the matter. They have made the situation worse. That's the bottom line. They have fueled inflation and instability and made borrowing more expensive. Their package, their tax cut package, it was estimated to cost, I think, $45 billion at the time they announced the mini-budget. They've already U-turned on the top rate, which makes it $43 billion, right? And yet when the IFS assessed it this week, they said the cost has gone up to $60 billion. <laughs> Yeah. That seventeen billion is the cost of just fucking up on the delivery <laughs> of the budget, right? And that's not small change. The cost of incompetence. I mean, Phenomenal. exactly. You could operate everyone's universal credit, everyone's yeah. universal credit, by ninety-five pounds, not twenty, with that seventeen billion. Okay, so that's the cost of incompetence. There's a new permanent secretary to the Treasury. James Bowler is Liz Truss's pick. She apparently overruled Kwarteng, who wanted a reformer in the role. What do we know about James Bowler? Well, other than he, that he has the most perfect name for a civil servant <laughs> ever, James Bowler. That's like the UKIP <laughs> candidate that was called Gammons. Um, Look, we know that he's a respected treasury insider, very much precisely the orthodoxy figure that Truss and Kwarteng railed against during their, le their leadership campaign. And we know that she's she has brought him in over Kwarteng's head, who still wanted the less conventional Antonio Romeo. So why are they doing that? Because they have lost market voter and political confidence at an institutional level. That's the big problem at the moment. As we record, 30-year bond yields have reached 5.1% for the first time since 2002. So the reason markets aren't settling, to answer your introductory question, is really simple. They didn't just lose confidence in the budget, they lost confidence in the people who wrote the budget. And while those people remain in place, Markets will be on a hair trigger. They will examine everything. They will factor in a high-risk premium to every single thing this government does. So the more that they U-turn, and I'm going to mix a metaphor terribly here, the more they dig themselves into a hole. Yes, like a corkscrew. It's not a mixed metaphor. Um, <laughs> but, but yes, it, weirdly, the, the series of U-turns now make them look even flakier, <laughs> which means that fiscally they may be moving to something more sustainable. But in terms of, you know, the people actually in the seats of power, they're saying to the market, we have no idea what we're doing. I mean, they talk about growth all the time, but they yeah. never talk about confidence. And that's the other element. The you don't element, get, you, I mean, really. you don't get growth without confidence. Right. It's phenomenal. I mean, who would pour money into this fucking bin fire at the moment? <laughs> I think it's Paul Krugman calls it the something like the moron risk. The problem is <laughs> the, the moron deficit is, is such yeah. that, that, that there's no market confidence going to return until, I mean, and I was listening to the World World at One yesterday. There was a guy on, I think he was from Allianz Bank or something. And he was saying that actually the problem is more fundamental than, than where can you find the spending cuts. And actually, you know, having spending cuts paid for through tax rises is in and of itself bad for confidence because it's not a good decision structurally to be making for the economy. So in a way, it's more fundamental than that. Mohammed mm. mm. El 
Ariane. That's the one. Chief Economic Advisor to Allianz. Hannah, there was more confusion today when the government said it was not going to ban no-fault evictions, which was a Michael Gove policy, and now Trust says they will be banned after all. What do we know about how many landlords are actually evicting people on this basis? I don't like this term, no-fault evictions, because actually I think it, it makes people who don't know much about the private rented sector quite sympathetic with landlords. It actually makes people think, well, if you own a property and there's people renting it from mm. you, of course you should be able to retain um, you know, the right to to take back your property, to sell it and so on. You've always been able to do that. What this proposal stops is people evicting simply based on their willingness or, or their desire to boost their rent or by just changing the tenancy or indeed uh, because they've complained because they need a repair. Instead of doing the repair, you just relet it to somebody and save the cost of doing that repair. Um, the idea is that this policy will prevent that happening. And of course, you'll be able to take possession of your, your property back if you need to sell. There's always been that um, you know, that provision and that remains. But, it's, but it gives people a little bit of stability. And within that, if their dishwasher goes wrong or their washing machine goes wrong, they can ring the landlord and say, without that fear in the back of their minds, that that will mean that they'll be booted out within a month and their kids will have to change school again and all of those things that come with that. So I think it's, it's great that we hear that she's committing to it. I mean, who knows how long that'll last. But actually, what she hasn't mentioned is some of the other parts of the potential bill that this is contained within. One of the things that housing campaigners and lawyers and so on have been really keen to see is some kind of um, reform of the legal system that supports tenants. At the moment, Mm -hmm. we've got a situation where uh, people can be illegally evicted. Now, this is not no fault eviction. This is full on illegal eviction, bully tactics, yeah. turning out and throwing people out of the house illegally. Um, and they can lose all their possessions in that process. Criminal act, but cutbacks to uh, legal advice yeah, yeah. Uh, and so on mean that ultimately people have no recourse. Yeah. Solicitors simply can't afford to fund those small cases anymore because of uh, they're not getting um, legal aid on it. That is really, really significant. So if the whole bill is chucked out, everyone will talk about no-fault evictions, but there are other things in there that we need, really need to keep an eye on. They're also thinking of getting rid of what's called Section 106 rules, which force house builders to include a certain proportion of affordable housing in their, in their new developments. What's the rationale behind getting rid of those rules? Well, actually, Section 106 is an interesting one because it's not very popular with social housing um, developers and housing associations either. If you think about some of the... Do you remember a few years ago there was all of that um, controversy over spikes... Uh, so you couldn't sit down in certain areas of, yeah, yeah, of a council, you know, separate doors for social tenants, separate playgrounds for the children of, of, of social uh, housing tenancies and so on. That is the result of Section 106 um, because it forces developers to include some social housing, but they cut corners on it and they try and separate it away. It doesn't really build sustainable mixed communities as mm-hmm. is supposed to be the aim. But the thing is, if you're going to get rid of it, you've got to have some formal strategy on where and and how we're building our social housing. So if we scrap it, we also need a really, really detailed, legally binding provision of social housing over the next parliament. Yeah, because uh, there's a risk that they just won't build anything course, affordable uh, at all. N- none, exactly. Michael Gove is proving to be a bit of a thorn in the side of Truss's <laughs> government, to say the least. statement, yeah. Yeah. Is he simply the trying... The revenge of Gove. <laughs> <laughs> 
Is he just trying to pull her towards slightly more reasonable positions? Or is there something more Machiavellian going on, do you think? There's, there's been some amusing quotes this week about, you know, his personality. I, I don't know. I, I think he is a deeply ideological person. And I think he does actually care about some of these issues. I mean, look at how he his achievements, you may not like them, but in education, he has really strong policy views about uh, where certain areas should go. He used to be a long time ago, the shadow housing minister under Cameron. But where I met him at that time when I was covering housing for a trade magazine. And he really did care and understand the sector in a way that I hadn't seen other politicians engage with the detail. And I think he is trying to move her in a uh, in a way that is is rooted in true belief, but also, of course, he's, he seeks to benefit from this. But he must surely be playing a five-year minimum term plan now. He can't really believe yeah. that he's going to... For, you know, the Tory victory in um, yes, 2028. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Will we still be around then? <laughs> <laughs> In her conference speech last week, Liz Truss labelled just about everybody who isn't in her cabinet as part of the anti-growth coalition. You can get No God What Now mug to show you're part of that coalition, by the way. Just go to podmarket.co.uk. We're podcasters, so we're part of the problem, obviously, but so are all the opposition parties. But how much do the opposition parties actually want to work together? And would the public be on board with it? Alan, you've written a book on electoral pacts in British politics. We think of Britain as pretty resistant to coalitions. That's part of the argument for First Past the Post. But has it always been that way? No, we've got examples more than you maybe folk memory would think where parties have at least contemplated coming to sort of coalitions or cooperation or electoral pacts from, you know, since 1945. I think it was seven or eight in my book. The central problem often is that there's this perception among some politicians, particularly politicians within larger parties, that they will come with an electoral cost. And that sort of makes people less likely to to sort of consider what often, on paper at least, like highly rational arrangements that would be electorally advantageous. So that's why we have this puzzle where, I mean, the most recent being December 2019, where there was certainly a strong argument. There was obviously some downsides, but there was certainly a very strong argument for cooperation between pro-Remain parties, if you like. And that didn't surface and 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 obviously we've got these sort of various examples from history and and we're now looking at the next election and and what we could sort of work out and pass from those and i think again we we could enter a a different situation we go into a new political dynamic now but where we could again see if you like something of a missed opportunity for some parties to engage in cooperation to uh, as as a means to gain office so i think there's there's this recurrent sense that they're going to come with a big electoral cost that means the big party always tries to sort of swallow up in various ways, the smaller parties, and that sort of recurring story, if you like, since 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 we had a democracy and a and the sort of party system we've had since nineteen forty five. It certainly happened in twenty fifteen, didn't it? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, in the period before twenty fifteen, a lot of people sort of forget now. It's sort of written out of history, but that whole election campaign was was sort of based on the question of what's going to happen after the general election. It's it's sort of remarkable that that after two thousand and ten, the Conservative Party under David Cameron, were able to uh, completely undermine Ed Miliband on the basis that he would enter some sort of coalition of chaos when, A, you, you didn't need a bit of foresight to see that David Cameron would 
engaged in a bit of chaos of his own, but also that he had been in a, in a coalition himself. And it was it was David Cameron's ability, going back to that history of the coalition, to be able to to sort of sell the coalition as a conservative-led government that actually meant that he was able to sort of, if you like, swallow up the Lib Dems in, in 2015. Mm. And that's going to live long in the memory, in the folk memory of the Lib Dems, particularly as we go into mm. that, into the next election. Talking about the next election, the polls have a very substantial Labour lead at the moment. Do you have a sense of how thick that Labour support is? Well, the, the problem with the national level polling is it's potentially not picking up some important um, uh, uh, localised elements. I think I think the first thing to say is that it's a relatively thick lead and it does look as it sounds like, I think a confident shock is what Jane Green and Will Jennings, the political science scientists call it, That and it's very hard for parties to come back from that level of shock. But un- under the surface of that polling, I think this is this probably would be a bit of an exclusive if this was going out live, but I think Redfield and Wilton have, have got some blue wall polling that I was sent for we were coming on, and it shows that Labour now lead in these sort of blue wall, if you like, constituencies, and the Liberal Democrats have remained pretty static. And that accords with what we've seen from the national polling. But it does potentially create some difficulties. You know, up to now in this parliament, the Liberal Democrats have been able to have this electoral niche as sort of a party that does well in the in the blue wall, if you like, or in some some parts of the southwest and so on. And this Labour surge is going to mean that the, the, the two parties are going to have to recalibrate a bit. And particularly mm-hmm. the Dems are, may find themselves struggling to, to retain that sort of niche within the sort of progressive electoral map, if you like. Because actually, in truth, although the polls in the blue wall might show Labour ahead, the reality would be that the Liberal Democrats would still be the party to to vote for many of those constituencies and you'd see that come and happen in a general election. But we're entering a phase that will look a bit like uh, the, the, the sort of 95, 1996, 1997 period where it looked for a long time like like Paddy Ashdown's Liberal Democrats were going to be completely completely absorbed by the sort of new, new Labour tide, if you like. I think that's that's something the Lib Dems need to sort of worry about a bit because I think that's the that's sort of where it's where it's going at the moment. And and I think not having a conference has actually cost them very dearly, um, because theirs was the conference that was sort of um, absorbed by the morning period. Um, yeah. Everyone mm-hmm. else had a chance to get their moment in the media to set out their policies, and the yeah. Liberal Democrats didn't, and I think that hurt them quite mm-hmm. badly. And they haven't had one for three years yeah. because of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That- I mean, they could do things that to be a bit more pro- proactive. I, I suppose. I mean, I saw um, it was Rachel Wolf who wrote the who co-wrote the, the Conservative Manifesto last time. She came out with this idea of, of Starmer. You know, if Trust is too ideologically opposed to uh, an energy saving campaign, why doesn't Starmer come out and come up with one of his own that could get involved Martin Lewis and so on and give the impression of being an alternative government? Well, that could be the kind of thing, for example, that that Ed Davey could t- could try and lead with. Trying to think of ways, often novel ways, to sort of cut through in what is a pretty cutthroat environment for smaller parties is is really important, and I think that's that's something that the Liberal Democrats may need to think about even more. There's there's potentially a new set of political sort of strategic challenges for the Liberal Democrat Party as you think about how the sort of landscape has sort of shaken out over the last fortnight or so. Yeah, because I mean, Labour has obviously moved towards the centre since 2019, which has changed changed the equation. And you've, if people are thinking about what differentiates Labour and the Liberal Democrats, it may be harder, much harder mm, for them to mm. do that now. Whereas if they vote Green, for example, it's clear, you know, you know exactly what you're voting for when you vote Green. Yeah, and I, think, I suppose the, the strategic dilemma cuts two ways. On the one hand, they're thinking about this sort of concept of, of, of someone that's a, a blue wall sort of conservative voter. I think Joe Swinson potentially got a bit too hung up on that idea in 
and the archetype of that voter. And on the other hand, you have this political space that's opening up, you know, around things like the, the idea of a universal basic income or radical drug policy or things like that, where actually the Liberal Democrats have something that Keir Starmer won't be able or won't be willing to, to say. So we could, that sort of harks back more, to, if you like, to the leadership of of Charles Kennedy and, and how he was able to sort of create that space on the left, if you like, to talk about and to create a sort of radical offer. I think I think these sort of questions are what, are what the Liberal Democrats potentially need to be asking themselves now. Does the large poll lead for Labour mean that Keir Starmer can safely rule out any kind of alliance with the Scottish National Party? Because he seemed to do that at party conference. He was able to quite successfully sort of, if you sort of put that one to bed. And if you if you speak to sort of a lot of Ed, Ed, Ed Miliband's advisors in that 2015 election, just that inability to to put that to bed was in part due to just his lack of political capital. And I think Keir Starmer has that has this has this sort of polling lead. But I don't think by any means the idea of a, a hung parliament can or should be ruled out because, well, firstly, there's more than zero chance, really, yeah, that Liz Truss could leave. But there's then the possibility of, of a hung parliament. And I think that's certainly possible at the next at the next election, despite the what looks like this sort of chasm in the opinion polls now. I, I read a really wonderful quote, uh, an old quote by Tony Blair the other day, uh, where he said that having a large poll lead is like carrying a Ming vase across a a room, you know, <laughs> it's a task that ordinarily would be completely achievable, but somehow by raising the stakes, everyone gets very nervous. Hannah, how much enthusiasm do you think there is among voters for Keir Starmer himself? I, I mean, I think this is clearly an enthusiasm for change, not an enthusiasm about Starmer as a figure. Um, but I don't think it's a stonkingly obvious point to make, so I'm almost embarrassed to make it. But <laughs> I think that. Um, you can't underestimate how significant it is that the Conservatives have thrown away their decades-held reputation for economic management. And yeah. it gives Starmer a real opportunity to step into that space. And he's done that quite well, I think. So I think there is a growing kind of enthusiasm for Starmer, thanks to Truss. And he kind of looks coherent, sensible, compassionate and in touch compared to her. And his sort of his barrister training, the way he presents himself, didn't do anything against Boris. It was useless against him. Mm. It made him look dry and maybe like he wasn't engaging in the theatre of Westminster. Um, but against Truss, he just looks incredibly competent. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. The dynamic of PMQs has completely changed. Totally changed. Because even though they both, Johnson and Truss, avoid the question... Trust seems to do it in ways which are less distracting and it's more obvious that she's doing it. Mm. Seems to be my, my impression. Do you think we can, you know, is there more Keir Starmer that the electorate will see and will possibly come to like more? Because when you look at focus groups, he still isn't coming across very powerfully um, and assertively. Um, he's just got rid of his chief of staff and he's put Labour on an election footing. Is that going to make a big change, do you think? I think this is an interesting one. I, I feel like this is what the kind of story that only people like us notice, but obviously yeah. we're broadcasting to people like us, so that's fine. <laughs> I think there's something really funny about the idea that sacking someone puts you on election footing. <laughs> what a strange <laughs> sentence. It's like, I'm, we're ready to go, so I'm just going to defenestrate somebody very, very significant. It suggests that we're not actually coherent cohering and, and ready at, at all. Um, so I, we are a long way from an election, sadly. I mean, even by our best hopes, it's going to be probably next autumn, I think. 
earliest, and it probably won't be. It probably won't be till 2024. No, don't say that, Hannah. I'm sorry. I can't bear it. I no, can't I bear it either. Be Look, I've been wrong about year. so many things. I said they'd pick Sunak. I'm probably wrong about this. Let's all hope so. Um, so, you know, may, you know, I think it's... Uh, we don't need to talk about being on election footing right now, but if they're going to do that, you better have a better way of talking about it than, mm -hmm. than the fact that you've got to get rid of someone because it's not working out. <laughs> what a strange, what a strange story. So beyond, you know, uh, us well-informed friends, what, what do the public see as Labour's weaknesses? We've got to be really honest about this, even though this is really painful. The two things that they're seen as weak on is Brexit and migration. And because fundamentally... Not ever the kind of general position of the public mood in the country doesn't sit where we all sit, mm. and that's got to be addressed. Mm. Trust essentially is looking slightly better on Europe than than Boris did. Um, perhaps she'll manage to kind of win those arguments in PMQs. They've got to decide where they stand on those issues, and they've got to deal with the divisions within the party that 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 decision-making is going to cause. And I think that's a really difficult point for the Labour Party over the next 12 months. But it's also important to say that demographically, all those attitudes are moving in what would seem to me the right direction. Yes. And so you have to, do it in a, that, well, you have to do it in a way that doesn't make you a sort of very electable now and then completely unelectable 10 years from now which is, I think, something the Conservatives have done. That's true. It's, it's a very, it's very it's sensitive. A, it's, a it's very delicately hard, managed yeah, one. But, yeah, you're right. Um, some of the quite batty and, frankly, cruel things that have come out of the Conservative Party conference around migration have definitely helped. Yes, they've helped in terms of moving that mood. Alex, moving back to the SNP, Nicola Sturgeon said this week she detests the Tories and everything they stand for. Will that do her any harm in Scotland? I don't think it will do her any harm in Scotland, the UK or around the world, to be honest. It's a pretty rational human response to the shit show we're witnessing. Um, but I, I do think that the faux outrage reflected a general trend that I have observed for some years, it was particularly noticeable last Sunday, if you watched both the sort of flagship Sky News programme and Laura Kunzberg, it seems to me that the SNP are held to higher standards and questioned more aggressively than any other party in the UK. And at the root of that, I see the, the fact that like monarchism and capitalism, unionism seems to me to be the default position and something that's considered the only sensible thing. And anything outside those three, so republicanism or socialism or a desire for independence, is considered as slightly silly and a little bit batty. And I think until we accept that wanting to detach oneself from, from the current bin fire is a really sane and perfectly rational response, we're not going to have the debate we need to have about independence versus the union. The Supreme Court is hearing a case this week on whether there should be another independence referendum. What are the chances of Sturgeon winning that? Well, I hear that the case has been presented impeccably by people who have been at the court. So if it fails, it won't be because of advocacy. And yet I suspect it will fail because... Even if it succeeded, the UK government could then simply quash it by altering the legislation, uh, which would be a really bad look. And so I can't see the, the judiciary effectively putting the legislature and 
the executive in such a pickle by making effectively quite a political choice. Yeah, because, I mean, historically, the clashes between the judiciary and the government in this <laughs> have yeah. not ended, ended well. Could it still be important in terms of the arguments that come up and the whole discussion and the airing that they get? Vitally so, I think. And in, in understanding Sturgeon's reason for making this legal maneuver is absolutely key. It's a win-win for the SNP, I think. They keep pressing the, the, uh, the case for a referendum they won't get it now, but they will get it at some point. But meanwhile, they keep making the the majority for independence slightly more grounded because it's like a coil that you sort of, you know, the more you don't let them have that argument, the more the stronger the the argument becomes. The whole series of quite significant polling that came out from, from Scotland from a few companies mm. in the last week or so. And what they showed was no shift towards the Labour Party at all among um, SNP voters. And this grounding of the, of the SNP vote on 45, 46% or so is really, really intractable. And the, concern, the Labour Party, it looks like, won't be able to get those voters, any significant amount of those voters back, at the very least until they're in government. Uh, and, and as Alex says, potentially not until the, the second referendum happens. Mm. And I think that's probably why Keir Starmer may uh, maybe actually be hoping that that this is another sort of problem, if you like, that falls on Liz Truss's in tray and happens sooner rather than later. I mean, but um, and, and this and it could, because I think ultimately it really isn't a question that can be adequately resolved absent a referendum. I don't think. I think there's going to be all sorts of ways that Labour try and get around it. You know, um, Gordon Brown's coming up with solutions and so on. But as Alex says, I think it's just it's potentially just skirting around the edges of what is ultimately an issue that can only be resolved through a second referendum. And I think it probably would be one way or the other resolved quite for, for if you like, uh, uh, to use that phrase, a generation. Next up, a question from our listeners in But Your Emails. This week, one from Georgia. That's listener Georgia, not from the US state. Or she may be from the US state, who knows. The trust government is clearly against any regulation on principle, dropping the energy awareness bill, letting the sugar campaign fade. To raise coffee even thinks smoking with kids in the car is a matter of parental choice. Even if Truss and Co vanish before Christmas, how can we remake the case for governmental reg regulation without being shouted down with cries of nanny state? Hannah, what do you think? I don't think it's going to be that difficult. I think a lot of the red tape that she's talking about um, getting rid of, great cries of I'm slashing it all, is stuff that people really like. Um, and the great thing about the fact that Truss is going to be gone as, pretty much as quickly as we blink uh, is that she's not going to get any of this through Parliament at all. There isn't a majority in Parliament, let alone in the country. So um, I think this, a lot of this is just rhetoric and I think we can relax a little bit about it. Mm. Maybe poking fun at the ridiculousness of, of it might be <laughs> not a bad strategy as well. I find it quite odd, sort of cognitively dissonant to, for the government to be so pro-individualism in this way and yet we had Suella Braverman at the weekend saying that she wanted to make cannabis a class A drug and throw people in jail for several years for possessing it. It doesn't seem to me, Alex, to stack up in any rational no, universe. No, I mean, it goes, it goes back to 
what a, an amazing cab driver once told me in Greece <laughs> that, that libertarianism <laughs> is basically the wish for the strictest possible laws to apply to everyone else, <laughs> um, <laughs> which just makes perfect, yeah. perfect sense to me. Um, and I mean, it doesn't make sense at any on any level because children are not extensions of their parents. They're not chattels. They have a right to safety. You know, they have individual human rights. And taking someone with Therese Coffey's position on abortion and her voting record on abortion, then saying, oh, but you can smoke in your car with your baby next to you. It just, I mean, it's just... Bizarre, it's bonkers, and it's incredibly unthatcherite. That's mm, the other absolutely. thing that's really weird. They keep going on about the nanny state. There is no better illustration of the nanny state than Margaret Thatcher. It's quite remarkable how much, uh, so much of this doesn't add up intellectually, as mm. you're saying. At the moment, there's this debate about um, why we've got a declining birth rate and whether or not that's a disaster in the making. We've got a situation where, on one hand, we've spent decades saying... You must only have children if you can afford to have children. It's yeah. your responsibility to look after your, the affairs of your family and the state will not pay for your children. Fine. But then the flip side is people can't afford the children. They're doing the right thing and they're not having children. And now you're so furious about it, you want to throw tax cuts yeah. at women. It, it doesn't add up. No, yeah. it ne never did. You don't, want, you don't want people to have loads of kids. You don't want immigration. And you don't want to work longer. How are we all just going to spend... You know, 30 years playing golf with just two people working <laughs> yeah. in the entire you've... fucking country. <laughs> sorry. You, sorry to butt in. Sorry, I feel so furious about something. I feel like I need to get it out. Um, but you've hit on another kind of actually an overtone, a slightly racist overtone that, that hasn't been discussed about this policy around um, procreation yeah. and so on, which is haven't we heard that the country's too full up, that we can't take immigration for a very long time? Mm. Well, no, it isn't too full up. We do need working age people. We do need immigration. We do need people to have children. But what they're saying is, oh, we want certain people to have children. Yeah, yeah bonk for Britain and then stay home and look after them. <laughs> yeah. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Hannah, what's yours? Okay, so um, I always bring the misery. I'm sorry about this. This is one about um, our sort of lost leadership role on the world stage. Um, it's an interview uh, in The Guardian with a member of the Somali government, the drought envoy, um, a man named Abdi Rahman Abdi Shakur Wazmi. He did an interview with The Guardian that's really quite moving about the um, the drought crisis that's unfolding in Somalia now and, and the deaths that uh, he's mm. witnessing. And he's talking about how the UK once played a very important role in global humanitarian advocacy, um, and now we're nowhere to be seen. Mm -hmm. We're invisible. And he's come to us. He's been seeking ministerial support from the UK government to make his case. And uh, this is his direct quote, no one is interested in the climate or food security. That chills me. Um, what, what a situation. What, what have we lost as a nation, as a force on the world stage? And really, in terms of what we stand for as a, as, as a people, and I, I found it a really depressing read, but absolutely critical to, to hear his, his voice. So I want to have a look at mm. if you have time. Sounds like Arthur Snell would have something to say about that. Um, mm. Alan, have you got another radar for us? Well, I'm not sure if it's gone under the radar. It maybe hasn't among uh, your listeners and, and, and you guys, but... It was uh, remarkable that we saw 
is that this flagship trade deal with India looks like it's basically just not going to happen because Suella Brahman just goes on stage at Conservative Party conference and uh, comes up with uh, a load of policy, uh, essentially sort of on the hoof, or, or if you like. And that, and this, and that's a, it's, it's sort of a symbol, as all these trade deals are, uh, but a, a sim- an important symbol nevertheless. As Liz Truss knows, that's part of, her, part of the reason how she to the road to Downing Street was through these sort of symbolic um, trade deals and. And the sort of collapse of that amid, amid sort of the collapse of everything may not be that important and probably will go under the radar for most people. But yeah, it, it speaks to that sort of inconsistency uh, and that lack of clarity that runs through so much of the government's policy at the moment. So Alan, it's exactly the same under the radar that I've chosen. Oh, no. Um, no, no, no. It's absolutely <laughs> fine. No, it's I'm absolutely sure perfect. Much, but you'll explain it much better, Alex. You get, you, no, no, <laughs> it's not, you explained it brilliantly. Great mind. I just find it really, I mean, it's the flip side, actually, of what mm. Hannah was talking yeah. about and our place in the world. Only it's the really funny, delicious <laughs> yeah. flip side of that. Um, and I just think... British politicians have, for a very long time, acted as if no one outside this country speaks English. And if they do, (laughs) they should somehow understand that all the xenophobia and exceptionalism and nationalism coming out is just aimed at 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 a sort of domestic audience don't take it don't take it seriously and I just find it delightful that they're now coming up against governments like Modi's who also have a nationalist um, agenda <laughs> and they're not letting this shit go it's kind of really really funny <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you put it that way because I'm afraid I've got one that's that's um, bringing the misery again um, it's the social work crisis which I don't. I don't think is still getting enough attention, uh, given especially that the social care levy has is apparently going, and we're not discussing what it might be replaced by or how we're going to pay for any reforms in its absence. But there are new figures out this week showing that there are fewer social workers than there have been for years and years, and as a consequence, people are finding it very, very difficult to get end of life care. And I know this from my own experience. I shall always feel guilty about the way that I trusted a particular council in south of England to look after my father when he lives, you know, he lived um, over 100 miles away and I could not trust them. And Mm. he died earlier than he needed to, frankly, as a result of that. And I think it's something we, we hush up. We don't want to talk about because it happens to people at the end of their lives. So they don't have a chance to talk about it themselves. And the people dealing with the crisis often don't have a voice in, in Britain, in our media. And it is to me just, just a disgrace that we cannot even pay people as much as say, Amazon is paying them. And that's why we're losing them to slightly better paid mm. jobs that are still badly paid, but are slightly better paid than, than uh, social care. And talking, early, as we did earlier, about this government idea about giving cash to families, it's come up again around the social care crisis that perhaps there could be a transfer of funds. Uh, if we can't find enough stuff, mm. we start paying the families. I really hate that idea, not because I don't think there are many people who would absolutely love to do the personal care themselves and they want to take that decision to look after their parent or family member or so on. And for those who want to do it, maybe that's a really good idea. Um, but for me, it creates this dynamic where essentially what you're saying is, right, women of Britain, um, you are going to have yeah. your midlives destroyed where you're bringing up both children and caring for your parents. But don't worry, here's a bit of compo. 
Yeah, it, uh, it commercializes you know, a relationship. Commercializes a relationship, and and it ruins women's careers. Yeah. And it is women when we see an equal number of daughters and uh, and sons of the of elderly people in this country sharing the care, personal care. Then maybe I'll support uh, a a policy like that. But I I can't in good faith say that this is a good idea when it simply destroys women's midlife options. One hundred percent. And that's the show. Thanks to Alex. Thank you. Hannah. Thank you. And our guest, Alan Wager. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening to the last Oh God, What Now? that comes out only once a week. (laughs) Don't worry. We'll see you on Tuesday for our first early edition of the podcast. And stay tuned for the extra bit, exclusively for backers on Patreon. That's after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thank you to some of the enormous backlog of loyal and brilliant supporters. Hello and thanks from me for your support to Nicholas Salloway, Callum Ballard, Neil, Daniel Mackey, Fiona, Sarah Kenyon, Will Kendall, Jake McDougall, Ruthie and Jeff Stevenson. Massive gratitude from me to William Lancashire, Ian Carroll, Ethan George, William, Chris Noble, Ginger Russell, Jane, Louise Curtis, Darren Green and Karen O'Connor. And finally, all the best from me for your generosity to Adam Brule, Lynn Wilkins, Madge Deepers, Huell Davis, Jay Johnson, Mark Slater, A.M., Rosie Ward, Kate Williams, Joe Fairs. We'll see you next week, early next week. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Roz Taylor with Alex Andreu and Hannah Fern. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers are Alex Reese, Jacob Archbold, and Jelena Sofronevich, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor is Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, John Cleese has joined the roster of GB News presenters. That includes Nigel Farage, Lawrence Fox, Tom Harwood, and the long-haired one from Coast. Cleese Cleese said there is a massive amount of important information that is censored in the TV and in the press. Luckily, the Today programme had invited him on to share his thoughts about that. Marina Hyde has dubbed this delusional broadcast disorder, the complaint that you're being cancelled by the BBC on the actual BBC. <laughs> Alex, what's going on here? Does the urge to be a countercultural icon take stranger forms when you're when you're 82, like John Cleese's? Um, just such fucking bedwetters, to be honest. I've never <laughs> seen I've never seen a bunch of worse snowflakes than the people who <laughs> Basically call everyone else snowflakes. I've never seen a group of people more trigger happy with a block button. Literally, they don't want any debate or anything, any dissent or anything. That was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now? every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else? every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.